Audley Hammond. Hi. You just did the one show. I know, it's weird, isn't it? What was it like? I've never met any other person in my field who's done the one show, but Morrissey did it apparently. Oh, really? So I don't think I knew that, that show is the most credible show on television. For sure. I don't want anyone to say a bad word about the one show. <laughs> uh, no, it was it was actually surprisingly fun. I was a little bit apprehensive about it. I mean, I'd be apprehensive about everything, um, including this podcast. But uh, I was a bit apprehensive about the one show, you know, given that it is on at that time and I've never seen it before. But it was surprisingly fun. Did you just have a chat or did they make you do anything? No, there was chats, but like it's such it's a magazine show. It's a half an hour long and they they cram in at least 70 items, little film inserts. So you kind of comment on everything else that's going on and then you do your own little chat. But, you know, I don't know what to say about myself. I, I know what to say about wildlife photography and art theft, but I don't know much about my own show, for example. Do you still get nervous, really, after all this time? Mm. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Do you still get nervous, really, after all this time? Mm. No, I, I I wouldn't get nervous in the way I used to. I, I think I was probably earned a reputation for being a barfer before going on stage. And that lasted for some time. But in the last few years, no, I wouldn't get nervous. I mean, not really, no. Uh, but sometimes when things are so far out of your control, like, you know, somebody else's show, I don't know what surprises you have for me, for example, Marcia. So obviously I'd... Um, I'd I'd be on on edge, not really nervous, but I'd be alert. Okay, I'd be ready. That's the. I, that's I have good reflexes, good so right. you know, I'm ready to move at a moment's notice. <laughs> well, I'm I'm going to throw some stuff. At. No, I'm not really. Um, you you used to live in London, didn't you? I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For for many years, um, for about ten years, really. So, and I just moved back to Dublin about three years ago. But I still come and go a lot. Do you like it? Yeah, I love it. Do yeah. you? I do. I, I love it more now since I've left it. I, I'm one of those people who, when I was here, I didn't do all the things you can do in London. And now I'm, I'm just here for a day or two, you know, I pop into the portrait gallery or somewhere after this. You know what I mean? Like do things that you wouldn't dream of doing a million years ago. So I love coming over and I love popping over because it's a bit of a novelty now and uh, uh, make the most of it. So you try and cram as much as possible into a day, eat as much as possible. And how come you moved in the first place whenever it was 13 years ago? Because I uh, came over to do stand-up, really. I mean, you know, London was um, and is probably the centre of the comedy world. So, uh, and I was in Dublin, like there were no clubs. There was maybe one little club that myself and my friends had set up. And then sort of mid-90s came over here. It was it was flying. Comedy was huge and uh, booming and just came over and surfed on that wave for a few years. When you first started doing stand-up then, so you said you you set up this club. Was that yeah. like the first time was, you'd ever done it? What was the first stand-up you ever, ever did? yeah. Um, probably a school debate. Oh, really? Yeah, where I got up, having not spoken for five years at school. I was one of those people. Seriously, were uh, you really shy? Yeah, yeah, quiet, shy. You know, I was, I was watching, I was observing what was going on and how to conduct myself in public. I watched how other people interacted, and I copped on eventually. So I, I got up. I, I sort of, in spite of all my better instincts, I got up and did a school debate, and I spoke about this subject, and I, and I, and I, and I got laughs. I mean, I. I on, you know, deliberately tried to be funny. Which Can was, you remember well, what it was about? I can't really remember. No. Okay. I really can't. It was very serious anyway. Uh, and then 
I went to college and, and throughout college, I, I clowned around quite a bit, you know, doing debates, I suppose, mainly. That was really the only forum at that time. I mean, there were no comedy clubs in Ireland in, in sort of the early 90s. So that was the only forum for it was the, was the debate, the university debate. And just, you know, really enjoyed getting that feedback, getting laughs. And, and uh, then when I left college with some friends of mine, we set up a comedy club because there was nothing like it, nothing like the comedy store, for example. And we'd been to the comedy store, we'd seen it in action and couldn't believe it that it was that simple, you know, that you'd just get up on stage and, you'd, you know, you just wore the clothes you were in and you said the stuff and people came and they laughed. And, you know, so we tried to recreate that in a tiny, in a, you know, on a tiny scale in Dublin and it worked quite well. And did it? Because people, you know, I know I've, I've been to Dublin, I've sat in pubs and everyone sits around singing afterwards. Mm. And Oh, you can't stop the singing. <laughs> if I could sing, I probably wouldn't have done comedy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but so did people take to it? Were they into it? Yeah, they really were. I mean, but I, like I have to stress on a tiny scale, you know, we're talking about a room the size of this pod that we're in uh, with 50 people there and no microphone. I mean, it was that small and they're still it's still there. This club, it's called the Comedy Cellar. It's brilliant. And any visitors to Dublin should check it out because it's where all the Irish comics start. Um, so it was brilliant, but not only as a venue, like you had a dedicated comedy crowd who, 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 who clued into it, but it was also a great kind of like self-help group, you know, like a little drop-in centre for addicts. <laughs> I mean, for comedy addicts. It was like, you know, where you supported each other and you, and you, 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 you kind of looked out for each other. It was, it, was, it was odd. It was an odd little thing that was going on there. It was a proper scene and uh, you had great comics who came out of it. I mean, you know, you know, you know the names, you know, Irish comics who, 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 who made it in, in the UK. And uh, it was just great. And, and, and that kind of grew from once a month to once a week now it's seven nights a week there at the moment. Were you ever making a living? No, God, no, 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 no. So living, living, living on peas. And uh, were you doing other jobs then at the time? Uh, yeah. Some kind of extra work, like in television and that sort of thing. Right. Background. Uh, yeah. Um, I remember in the crime reconstructions, I was I was killed. In were one. you really? No. Um, How were you killed? Yeah. Uh, shot in the knees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's dramatic. So I knew after that, I knew my career is going nowhere. <laughs> I've got to get out of here. That was literally the last thing I did in Ireland was a crime line reconstruction. And um, I cleared off and I went to London and like just the difference was just incredible. It's just it was so exhilarating. I can't describe the feeling of just, you know, going from club to club and like, you know, really just being busy and, and doing the stuff that you work so hard. On. I mean, comics, you know, although they try and make it look effortless, you know, work quite hard in the material and you just want people to hear it. And. It was just brilliant coming to London. And you did really well as well. You won the one of the big, at the time, like one of the big competitions, the Hackney Empire. Yeah. New Act of the Year, which is has got a really good heritage, like Rod Gilbert. Yeah, it was great. And uh, Ronnie Ann Kona, Russell Brand yeah, had yeah. done it as well. It was such a great, uh, I mean, it didn't really make any, any difference, I suppose, materially, you know, but it was it's a great, it's a great kind of boost to your confidence. You know, you think, well, sort of other people think it's okay. Presumably as well, it's easier to get booked after you do something. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah, yeah. But you were travelling and stuff as well. I mean, this is all kind of pre-Father Ted, you probably... Yeah, yeah but Father Ted came almost too quickly because, like, I was really enjoying this whole stand-up and travelling around the country and doing a lot of stuff. And then um, Father Ted did come along sort of out of the blue, just when the stand-up career was really taking off, I suppose. Was it really out of the blue? Were you it surprised? It was truly out of the blue. I was utterly surprised because I, I wasn't in the habit of going to castings or anything like that nobody ever asked me to go to one I, had you done had you done any telly or anything I'd done a point? few little things in Ireland but I mean tiny things you know like guest roles walk on roles and things I mean you know I didn't see myself as an actor or anything so it was it was it was a big surprise to me but the writers liked my stand up and they thought 
they might be able to do something with that. And they generally, they cast a lot of, it was kind of mostly stand-ups, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was people with a certainly a background in comedy, all right, yeah. I mean, Dermot Morgan was a sort of a Rory Bremner type satirist in Ireland who played Father Ted. And the guy who played Father Jack was, you know, he was always doing comedy as such. Not really stand-up, but... You know, he was always doing sketches and review type shows and stuff like that. And then other people like Graham Norton and Ed Yeah, Byrne absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Ed Bur- yeah, and Jason Byrne turned up in it and, you know, uh, Tommy Tiernan turned up in it. All these, all these Irish comics, yeah. I've heard from so many people that when you do a TV show, especially when you do a sitcom, you just have no idea how it's going to do. But was there any sense of like, this is a bit None different? Or this just no. I thought like it was, I thought it was a really terrible idea. Did you really? <laughs> You know, I actually thought it was a throwback, like three priests on an island. You know, how old fashioned in terms of sitcom territory is that? But, you know, as soon as I saw the scripts, I thought, well, like it's, it's obviously got a very contemporary sort of feel to it. And it's very visual and it's really good fun. Lots of references in there, you know, so you could see the Simpsons influence and stuff like that there and the Seinfeld influence. But, yeah, we just thought no one's going to watch this. I mean, the guys who wrote it, Arthur and Graham, I mean, they'd written a thing called Paris just before that, starring Alexi Sale, which bombed. And it was put out at two in the morning. So that's what I thought the fate of Father Ted was, that a handful of people are going to watch it very late at night. But it's no skin off my nose. I'll get back on the road and do my thing. And uh, so I was as surprised as anyone when it took off. And did it take off straight away or was it? A- oh, it was uh, slow enough. I mean, you know, it, 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 it critically it did really well the first series, but no, very few people would have seen it. And then second series, I think it kind of kicked in a bit. And then it sort of went from cult to you know, much more mainstream after that. I guess it's kind of often that thing, isn't it, where there's the first series and and actually by the time the second series comes, enough people have told other people yeah, about it. Yeah. For it to the, pass on. That's right. It's the it's the what do you call that? The tipping point. The tipping point, there you go. But still now, like I mean, do, are you still finding that, that they show it on they show it on E four a lot, I don't know if on Yeah, they do, yeah. RTA yeah, Irish TV they show do it, as well. So yeah, around the clock, yeah. Are you finding there's still new fans coming Yeah, there are, it? yeah. And kids, very young kids get it. I and mean, really, really, really? Yeah, really, yeah, yeah. Like four or five year olds, yeah. Yeah. You've got you've got young kids, haven't you? I have, yeah. So th- are their friends Yeah, they'd be well into it, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean they're sick of it now, but uh, at the time, they would have been really well into it. And their friends, like, my kids weren't really that into television, full stop. But when they saw their friends coming up to me in the school playground, kids, <laughs> kids bowing in front of me, I love that. Uh, I encourage that. But uh, so then they were going, why, why, why are all these people bowing at you? So we had to show them Father Ted. And then they, oh, that's the reason. And then, you know, they went back to Strictly Come Dancing. But it, but it is massive. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan, but I'm someone I don't really, I kind of don't get that dorky with... DVDs and things, but mm. I've not only bought the box set, I bought it twice because it oh came out God. again with some more features yeah. on the extras that weren't there the first time. In a way, it's a sort of like it's great and I, and I you know, it's it, it's just a fantastic thing to happen to you in, in your lifetime because you don't expect good things to happen. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I grew up with that sort of mindset. But in another way, it's kind of like a hindrance as well because obviously people really love it and they want me to be Father Dougal forever and they won't let me get on with my projects my program do you um do you i want to talk about like because you've done a bunch of stuff since then but um but one of the things that they have is they have a convention ted fest that happens yeah, every year yeah. is it like the star i mean we had scott Kapoor on this podcast a few weeks ago and he was briefly in one of the star wars films right. so he goes and like does the conventions is yeah. that do you ever go to those no, are you i don't asked to i don't know i i am asked to yeah i have been asked to it but i think you have to be you know you have to draw the line somewhere like, first of all, as much and all as I love Father Ted and I love it as much as anybody, 
But, you know, as soon as we finish the last recording, that's it over for me. I have to get on with my life, back to stand up, writing, whatever, other TV stuff. You have to leave it behind. You cannot, cannot do that. You know, get overly sentimental about a TV show, no matter how good it is. Secondly, people would be disappointed for the grumpy man to turn up um, who is not actually a real innocent priest at all. And I, you know, so I just think they don't really want to meet me, Ardle. They, they want to meet Dougal. And Dougal is fictional and they've got to realise that. He doesn't exist. Okay? And do people not, though? Do people there's kind a, of come part up to of you? There is a little part of me that is Dougal forever. Yeah. Yes, of course, in there. The, the naive part that I that I cling to sometimes. The childlike part. Uh, but I just think it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't be a good thing. Do you get that thing like people, you know, actors in casualty say they get people coming up saying, Doctor, I've got a busted knee, can you help me out? Do you get people coming up, you know, saying, Father, can we take confession or uh, or even just no. thinking that you're a bit simple? Yeah, oh God, thinking I'm simple, yeah. Really? That really? An awful lot. Now particularly in the few years after Father Ted, like people would feel very sorry for me in that. You know. <laughs> I remember doing a gig in High Wickham. And uh, this quite elderly couple were at the show. And, you know, the show was fine and it went well, as far as I can remember. But afterwards, this elderly couple came up to me. I don't know what they thought of the show, but they were like, felt so sorry for me that she put her hand in her purse and she took out a fiver and she rolled it up and she put it in my hand. Do you know that way that ants do sometimes? (laughs) There you go, there you go. Good boy. Good man yourself. What did she think? I don't know. (laughs) But I have to put up with that a lot. And, and... You know, I've even been out with my family and, you know, you're in a restaurant or something and, and I've, you know, people kind of stand and look at you for a while. And then I, I've seen someone go over to my wife, people who did, didn't know us and said, is he always that stupid? You know, and like. <laughs> what does she say? She'd probably go, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like you can be a real victim of, of success. The that, other thing anyway. is that not that long afterwards you did um, My Hero. Yeah. By the way, speaking of conventions. Mm. That unbelievably falls into the sci-fi category in the minds of some people. They have sci-fi conventions in Atlanta, Georgia, and there is a My Hero stop. Wow. Yeah, and they tell you, you know, come stand there and sell photographs of yourself for a fiver. <laughs> you've been invited or you've been... You've been invited. Oh, I haven't been. Oh, God, no, no. Again, for the same reason, run a million miles away from it. So they just want you to stand by the stall and just yeah. be an extra. Yeah. Wow! Just be there, probably in uniform. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, in costume. It was a huge show here, though. It was BBC One. It was really kind popular. Of I mean, it obviously wasn't. You know, it wasn't a critical uh, success like Father Ted. It didn't have those sort of kudos at all. But you, you know, you could wait forever for, you know, another brilliant thing to come along. But another brilliant thing isn't likely to come along. Brilliant on this on the level of Father Ted. I mean, my hero had a fantastic audience. It was very much a family show. BBC need and crave shows like that to fill that Friday evening slot. A show like that that has such wide appeal is never going to have the critical chin strokey no. people. But, um, but you know, it was really huge. It was really yeah, successful. It was fun to do as well. I mean, it's a great job. You know, you, you like from an actor, comedian point of view, it's a fantastic job, you know, to get your teeth into something like that and to try and make it work as well as you can, despite your own reservations you may have about, about it. You know, you still have a creative challenge every week, which is what you want. It's what, it's what we do. We need. You talked about people coming to the shows and thinking you're a bit simple, but did you also have the problem of people yeah. thinking, well, I'll come and see a stand up and it'll be nice and fluffy, yeah. Michael mm. McIntyre type, warm yeah. and. Oh. Yeah. And actually, your stand up's quite dark. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, it's, I, I hope there's light and shade in it, actually. I mean, it's probably more light than shade, in fairness. You know, uh, you know, it's not 
Brendan Burns. Lenny Bruce. Right. Right. But uh, it's definitely not that. I mean, to some extent, you know, you, 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 you get typecast. I did other shows as well, you know, more comedy drama type things, but they didn't really stick. Well, so you did this one on ITV. I did one called Big Bad World. Yeah. yeah. We did two series of that and I did one on BBC called Blessed. Which was Ben Elton. Ben Elton written and directed by, yeah. And, you know, they were attempts to break away from that. But you see, people don't want you to be something other than what they like you for. And that's something you have to contend with and live with. And that's fine. And you get on with it. But in terms of the stand-up, you just have to do what you do. And you're, you're very grateful to get anyone in through the door, you know, to get someone to come to see your show. Like, it is actually an honour, you know, people have decided to come to see you. So your job is to give them the best show that you can give. The best show that I can give wouldn't be doing impressions of me in My Hero or Father Ted. That wouldn't be a good show. It would be a, a rubbish show. But doing the stuff, the material that interests you, that, that, that appeals to you, you know, touching on subjects, real life. So real life, light and shade, you know, the fun stuff and the kind of... But... It never gets as dark as I'd like to because I just I just I'm afraid to go there sometimes, you know. I've gone there in novels and other in, in, in other writing projects. In stand up because it's so I suppose because you're so exposed in a way, perhaps, you know, I maybe I've been guilty of maybe holding back a little in terms of material. So your novel, you wrote that kind of after Father Ted. Yeah. Or r- in the middle actually right. probably. Uh, it's called The Talk of the Town. And it did very well, as well as good reviews. You got in this, this uh, the Peter Brock's gotcha. all thousand and one books to read before yeah, you died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, I, you know, I couldn't oh. believe that. I mean, there's absolutely, it shouldn't be in there now. I, I, I you know, there are lots of other books, but who am I to argue with? But there's, you know, it's, yeah, exactly. There's like yeah. 150 literary critics and they yeah. put Oscar Wilde and uh, Dostoevsky and yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's hilarious. It's, it, I think it could be someone taking the piss. To be frank, <laughs> I'm not sure. Surely they wouldn't, you know, risk themselves like <laughs> I know. That. No, no, it's really gratifying because like, again, you know, everything I do is characterised by self-doubt. That would be the starting point for everything. Every line, every joke you do, every every role you take on, every everything. And particularly with writing, something as personal as that, you know, you're just racked with doubt all the time. So to get any sort of validation at all is brilliant. Are you planning to write any more? I'd love to. Have you kind of dipped into it or is it just... Uh, I, I have tried and failed to write a second one. But it's the kind of thing I think it requires such commitment. And I still love stand-up. You get totally seduced by stand-up. Stand-up is brilliant. Is stand-up you know? your main love? Well, is it that is at the moment. I mean, I, 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 I'm utterly consumed by it, you know. And it requires like utter dedication I think if you're going to do it properly if you're going to you know play with the big boys I mean you've got to you got to do it all the time and go to all the festivals and you know tour and do all that You are touring you just went to China didn't you? Yeah I mean that's the other big attraction of stand-up is you can play anywhere as well now How long were you in China for? A month What was it like? <laughs> it was brilliant It was It was just like it just it was an excuse to go there really I mean there's like stand-up is, is so portable you know it's just you and, and your jokes and you go to these places and, you, you know, you would be playing to expats in a place like that. And some Chinese people as well who, do, who don't know what's going on. But it's just, it's, it's just great. It's just, you know, as I say, an excuse to be there, to go to places that you might not otherwise go to. You know, you obviously have to change your material a bit as well. And because you're, I think it's the best way to travel as well, if you have a reason to be in a place. Because as a normal tourist, just drinking in, the sights and sounds of the street and, you know, the culture of life or whatever and the food and everything else. That's brilliant. But when you actually have a reason to be there, you have to totally engage and you have to find out what's going on and you have to talk about it on stage that night. So it's a brilliant way of, you know, really getting onto the skin of a place. And so did you go around and see, because China's... I... Oh, it's vast now. You can only scratch the surface in a month. But we went around a lot, like, you, you know, especially with the tour, because a lot of the expats are in places like Shenzhen and Guangzhou and these 
like hugely populous places, but they're industrial cities where no tourists would go to. And um, so it's great to get a glimpse of that as well, just to see, you know, like it, it's chaos. It's it's fantastic. Is it in what way chaos? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people. I mean, like the first site we saw, I think in Beijing or whatever is, uh, I mean, everyone goes around on bikes, you know, and then you, 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 like we saw a fellow with two Victorian wardrobes on his bicycle. <laughs> now, how do you do that? You don't see that in London. How physically? How did that? How, well, exactly. We were looking at it. We followed him like for ages. How how does he do that? How is he on the bike with two huge Victorian wardrobes, like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, like <laughs> that size of a wardrobe? And what were the audience? And where like? was he going with them? <laughs> is he living them? And what I saw seven people on a scooter, a like a whole family. One. Yeah, a whole <laughs> grandmother, son, wife. Three, four children and a stranger. <laughs> and were you kind of madly taking pictures of all these? Well, things not really, because, you know, you'd feel I, I'd, I'd be a very, I wouldn't do that, you know, without permission. Mind you, my children were with me and um, I have a blonde daughter. She's extremely fair. And uh, the reaction she got was extraordinary, you know, particularly in some of the more rural areas where they would just push us out of the way just to get at her. Uh, yeah, honestly. How uh, old is she? Was she's that, eight. Was that she scary? Was, she was totally freaked out for the first day or two. And then she was delighted because the other kids weren't getting any attention. So she was going, oh, here we go. And she really felt she was a celebrity. And she was a celebrity over there uh, because there was something about it. We asked some people, like some Chinese people, like, why are they so keen? And like these would have been provincial people visiting Beijing or whatever. And it was, look, it's look. You know, she was a fairy and uh, it was look and they just needed to touch her and have a photo taken with her. Wow. Yeah. That's brilliant. But they didn't ask, didn't they? Just didn't they? Literally pushed us out of the way. <laughs> so, so, so they visited Mao's tomb and they got a picture of my daughter and they went home happy. I also like the idea that all, all across China there are families with your daughter. <laughs> I know. Up over the mantelpiece. Yeah, exactly. Mao and her. But it's great. It's like... You know, I I love I love I love traveling, and it's just great to be able to do it with stand up. You know, and, and like there are festivals all over the world and everything. It really is a nice. It's a traveling circus, and it's great. And it must be nice for your kids if you're getting to. Well, the odd time they can come on things like that when it coincides with school holidays and stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How do they feel about the TV stuff you've done? Because you've done some kids stuff. You did this comic relief. Yeah. Robbie the reindeer, um, which was a huge thing. It had three episodes. It won yeah. loads of awards. Yeah. It went over to America. Yeah. I loved. Um, I did Doctor Who as well. They were mad yeah. about that. Just a, a cameo in Doctor Who. Tell me about that. that as was a cat man. Uh, I, yeah, I was just a cat man in Doctor Who. It was, yeah, it was good. Like, Did you have all the crazy... I, yeah, the makeup was fantastic in it, I have to say. And, uh, you know, it took obviously a long time to put it on. How long it did it take? It took about five hours. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really, really painstaking. I mean, each hair practically attached to you. And, like, two strengths of industrial glue applied to your face. How do you like breathe and drink well you can't so you really can't I didn't breathe for four days <laughs> while we were doing that so it was it was debilitating I mean uh, you couldn't eat because you couldn't damage the delicate mask and so you had to sip everything through a straw so did you just have soup and juice yeah yeah and then uh, and smoothies to keep going and then um, I remember like I had contact lenses in at the time but the mask was so tight that the contact lenses literally popped out of my eyes <laughs> so I couldn't see so I couldn't see, couldn't eat, couldn't breathe because of all the hairy bits in my nose. And then the whole episode, from my point of view, took place in the back of a car. So I'm in a tiny car in a studio in my cat gear. Also, because I'm, I'm a kind of an aviator cat. So I've got a helmet, goggles. I've got a scarf and an RAF flying jacket so over my cat gear. 
and there are five kittens in the back as well and I'm allergic to kittens are you really <laughs> oh my god so it was an experience but it, like it's such it was such a good show I haven't seen the new Doctor Who but I know that series was really great who was the doctor in that one was David it? Tennant right. was the doctor and he was a very good doctor and he was a very nice doctor <laughs> It was just like, it was a really good episode as well. Very moving, very powerful episode, I remember. It's very kind mm. of philosophical. These it days, is, it has a bit of everything. Another thing that you've done is Skins. Yeah. You were in, yeah. which I guess the character there is sort of against the type of the sort yeah, of... Yeah, a bit. Like, yeah, again, that was a, a really nice thing about Skins is they ask you, do you want to come and, you know, it made clear that it's a cameo and you're there to assist the younger actors. And they really encourage you to play against type. So they ask you, you know, do you want to do this? Thing and how would you like to do it and and you know they encourage you to improvise a bit and oh, do they really yeah and mentor the actors and stuff like that you know so it was a very good experience so like, you played a teacher I played a seedy sort of a teacher with a Northern Irish twang who sort of got overly friendly with one of the students and then he got overly friendly with her mother so it was really good fun well um, another thing playing against type is you just did this film with oh Arthur Matthews yes yeah who co-wrote Father Ted yeah. Wide Open Spaces yeah. tell me about that well that was a bit of a departure for both me and Arthur it was kind of a fairly bleak film I have to say Arthur's a huge fan of like obscure art house Scandinavian movies and so he tried to do something like that set in Ireland so it was a very modest film to be honest with you Ewan Bremner was in it as well. And he's, we played, he's spud out of train to Yeah, that's right. And we sort of played two kind of losers down on their luck who are on the run and we kind of hole up in this um, quarry, disused quarry. So it's all set in a disused quarry. Nobody wants to go and see it. Nobody went to see it and nobody would want to see it. <laughs> but it was kind of really funny in places. And But but from my point of view, I played it absolutely dead straight. That's the way they wanted me to do it. Right. So totally against type for me. Um, well, I guess someone who was going to see a film and they heard that it was co-written by the guy that wrote mm. Father Ted and starred you and you and Bremen, they might be like, oh, it's these two guys. And it's a bit there were, there, of... I think they were expecting Father Ted Mark II. Yeah, right. definitely. And uh, it certainly wasn't that. But I mean, it had some really funny moments in it. But we were we were we were playing it really, really. It was a very downbeat film. Right. Too downbeat for, you know. But are you taste. are you are you drawn to doing stuff like that? So oh, that... Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I just want to do things. You know, I would like to play lots of different types of things. But, you know, you're at the mercy of what other people want you to do. I don't go, you know, knocking down doors and annoying people, pestering them saying, look at me, I can be a pirate. (laughs) But if people offer you things. Yeah, I would consider them and usually say no and move on. The kind of people would ask me to do would be reality shows. Oh, do you get asked to do that a lot? Do Do you? Like, I would have been asked to do most of them. Right. At this stage. The latest one was Dancing on Ice. Oh, really? (laughs) I mean, God. If I had more chest hair, perhaps. (laughs) No, I I just, you know, you have to draw the line. Right. The same as the doing the appearances as Dougal. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. I just don't understand it. I don't understand the, the impulse to do it or the motivation. But I suppose it's exposure and it's kind of if that well, you want to be... But who wants to be exposed? I mean, like, I, I value privacy more than ever now, you know, when you like in the in the world of Twitter and Facebook and tabloid frenzy, you know, just having a little corner privacy is a great thing. It's it's it's, it's kind of cool. Nobody knowing about you. <laughs> Nobody but knowing wonder, where you are or what you're doing. But I wonder uh, if part of that is because when you started doing stuff, you kind of already 
uh, you already like had had a wife and a family and stuff, didn't you? When well, you were sort of starting out, and I didn't have when I was a kid. Like I didn't have a wife. No, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. I I often people like that are people who've kind of been thrust into it fairly young, and so they just kind yes, of yes, I, I accept that. Or people who can't live without. I yeah, I know. I I do understand it. I do definitely understand it. I just think. You have to understand that careers have trajectories and they go up and down and up and down and up and down. And that happens. And, you, and I think there's just something a little bit unseemly about chasing it when it starts to go awry. I think you should try and maintain your dignity as much as possible at all times. That's just sound advice for humans. Try and go about your business with a certain amount of dignity. You know, lose it sometimes now and again, but generally. Is that preachy? No. It's too preachy. No, I think that's fine. For the podcast. It's I think too preachy. <laughs> I think it's perfectly good advice. Mm. Uh, I want to ask you about a couple of mad gigs that you've done with the stand-up. First of all, did you support the Stranglers? The Stranglers, yeah. It was, it was, it was bizarre. I mean, and again, I would have been a huge fan of the Stranglers. I mean, that's absolutely my era. And uh, just it ended up uh, in the south of France as well. Glamorous. Really, really weird. Really it's just too odd for words uh, you know when you get a call and I only got the call about a week before uh, do you want to come to Cannes it was during one of those big festivals uh, we've got the Stranglers here and we'd like you to open for them do half an hour before the Stranglers had you ever met any of them before? no so I did and um, it was all these guys in suits <laughs> all you know middle aged men dancing to the Stranglers it was hysterical they're really quiet lads and really nice people and you know they weren't at all like you'd expect the stranglers to be was that disappointing that was kind of heartwarming in a way you know they were just like oh how's it going just putting away their guitars after the show and you know the drummer is 66 and you know he's a fleet of ice cream fans <laughs> does he yeah. was that a like side no because i think he always had even before the band really yeah so i don't know it's just a novelty really did you do a gig in a prison did a few gigs in prisons in my early days, yeah. Oh, really? What, before all the... Yeah, yeah. Tell stuff. I did, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, like as a young comic, you know, you will gig anywhere. You just do anything that anybody asks you to do because you just want to get up there and do it and try it out. So like the more extreme, the better, really. And it kind of sets you up then for life. So I, I there was this social worker in Dublin who used to ask me to do gigs in prisons. So I, I did loads of them. And what were they like? Awful. Really? Yeah, they were actually, yeah. In what way awful? Well... They weren't all awful. I mean, one, I remember doing one for kind of young offenders, which was really good. And there was a lot. I was with other people, and we were doing some improvisation stuff, and that was really good fun. And you know, they just loved you, slagging off the warders and the governor and stuff like that. That was really good. Then I did one for the sex offenders, and I remember like being really traumatized by that. Like just some of the heckles, <laughs> I, you know. And there was a girl in the bill as well, and she got a really hard time. And oh, it was just oh awful. man, yeah, it was just awful. I mean, the chicken wire. We're talking chicken wire here, and. Uh, just horrendous abuse and whoa yeah and then not quite a gig but um i only know a little bit about this slain castle oh yeah that was good Eighty thousand people yeah tell me yeah, this story well sadly they weren't there to see me <laughs> um it was uh i might have to rewind a little bit i was in new york in around 2000 2001 and i was at this there was a kind of a thing called the new york irish comedy festival and I was gigging at that. and But as part of it, there was a little tiny question and answer session with myself and Graham Linehan, one of the writers of Father Ted. A little Father Ted afternoon. 40 people turned up at that, including Moby. Whoa! Yeah, so Moby's sitting there. Turns out he's a fan. He's on his own in his anorak and he's asking reasonably sensible questions about Father Ted. So fast forward a year later, 
we now know that Moby's a fan of Father Did Ted. you speak to him afterwards or anything? Nope. No, no, he just slipped in, slipped out, asked his questions and went about his business. <laughs> so then I get this call. I remember it distinctly because it was the day of um, a World Cup qualifier, a very important match. Ireland were playing Holland to qualify for the World Cup. So it would have been 2001. And uh, you two were playing in Slane Castle, which is 80,000 people. It's a beautiful, natural arena beside a castle. Glorious autumn afternoon in Dublin, outside Dublin. And... Uh, I get this call from Moby saying he wants to sing My Lovely Horse which is a song from Father Ted at this festival I'm going oh, that's a brilliant idea but I, I'm going to the match I, I don't think I'll be able to do it so uh, were you really going to turn it down well I well, I, I was I, I, I'm an obsessive football fan you know and particularly when Ireland are involved uh, so I was going to kind of half turn it down but I was going to try and figure out a way of doing it And but anyway they solved the problem they said well don't worry we'll pick you up in a helicopter after the match and we'll fly you down. So, so we do, and we swoop down over the eighty thousand people. We don't. I, we can't speak to Moby on the plane because on the oh, he was in the helicopter. He's with in the helicopter, you. but we've got cans on, and it's very noisy. So, you, you, we actually didn't exchange any words. No rehearsal. Moby's all wound up before his show. Um, so, I never really spoke to him actually, hardly at all, uh, except to say hello. And um, uh, then we go up on the stage. I can't believe it's happening. I, I'm it, panicking it, now at this stage. Is it like halfway through the gig or what It's towards the end he, of the gig. So okay. it's kind of like almost the climax of his gig. Right. <laughs> and they're all getting really pumped up. You two are about to come on and it's it's just heaving. It's a fantastic arena. And uh, I went up and I actually went blank. I did. I You know, I'm used to playing to, you know, good crowds and big crowds sometimes. and But no, I, I never experienced anything like that. 80,000 people. The wall of sound that comes back at you. It's It's phenomenal. And it literally blew me away. I kind of like was probably blown about 10 feet back. But also my mind went blank. Like, so I actually have no memory of singing the song, My Lovely Horse. And I've no, I've never seen any footage of it. There's no, there's no footage of it. Oh man, there must be someone who was recording. Well, I don't think people were really YouTubing stuff in that, at that stage. That was 2001. So mm. just before all that. Yeah. So, wow. Uh, that was a, that's a box tick though. To... Yeah, art was great. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it, I was just shaking like a leaf for about a year afterwards. <laughs> and did you get to meet Moby afterwards? Yeah, but just briefly, you know, uh, we, you know, we have very little in common, you know, he's <laughs> vegan and I love burgers. So. <laughs> wow. An incredible thing to do mm. though. Okay. So stand up, you have got dates coming up in, uh, in London. You're going to be at the Udderbelly. Yeah, the Udderbelly Festival. Which on is great the South. Do you know the Udderbelly? Have you? Yeah, I've never played in it before. It's a big, uh, upside down cow. Yeah, no, it's mm. great. So you're going to be there the weekend, um, three nights, 25th to the 27th of June. Yeah. And then festivals you're doing, my favourite festival, Latitude. Latitude, yeah. yeah Amazing festival. There. And then you've got a tour in October. Tour in October, you? Edinburgh for a week, and then a tour in October, November. Are you just doing a straight show in Edinburgh? Yeah. Have you d- like done Edinburgh? Like, Not for to- ages. When was the last time uh, you were there? Oh, uh, I don't know. Really long I time? really don't know. I mean, it was a long time ago. How are you feeling about it? I'm kind of feeling like... Yeah, a little bit, uh, I'd say, apprehensive about it. Come back, you know. Um, I did it. I would have done it like a few years in a row at a certain stage of my career. But I always felt at that time, probably wrongly, but I thought I was right at the time, that you kind of do it, you know, when you want to get a lot of attention and you need to do it. You know, it's, it's, it's the centre of the universe for a little while. And then after a while, you know, you don't need to do it because it's not your business. Once, you, once you're on that touring thing where you're touring your, your own show and you're on TV and stuff like that, it, there doesn't seem the same compelling need to be doing Edinburgh year in, year out, if you know what I mean. So what made you decide to do it this year? Uh, I think it's because I've got this big tour coming up and I, I just... Also because I've really enjoyed doing festivals over the last few years. It, it's uh, 
I, I kind of miss the camaraderie of the live circuit, I suppose. So I've, you know, done Melbourne and Montreal and all these things again and again because, you know, it, it's enjoyable. I guess stand up usually is quite a solitary sort yeah, of it is, yeah. Yeah. occupation. Yeah. Okay. So uh, generally for dates and stuff like that, I think if people just Google oh God, yeah, I Ard Lohan know, and, I know and then like there's an Ents24 website that uh, that has all of your dates on them yeah. so far. Um, so uh, Ard Lohan, thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.